We shall turn now to the Word of God. We shall turn to the book of the Revelation, chapter 13, and read again from verse 11. Revelation 13, reading from verse 11. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell in the earth, by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell in the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by his sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, three score, and six. And may God bless to us this reading again of his holy word. Last Lord's Day we were concentrating upon the description and activity of this second beast that completed the wicked, evil trinity uh, that was to have such an impact upon human society and and upon the world of men. And when we came to verse 18, we stressed the words, here is wisdom, here is wisdom. God's revelation of Jesus Christ, remember, does present us with wisdom that is not of men, but it is from above. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And here is God giving to the church, the seven churches in Asia in particular, and the whole universal church in general, Words of counsel and words of wisdom. Then at the end of the verse we read, Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man or the number of man, and his number is six hundred, three score and six. Now you cannot possibly understand what is written in verse 18 without considering what it says in verse 17 and verse 16. 
the second beast causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So it's very obvious that in general, men and human society, if they are going to prosper, if they're going to trade, then they are required to have the mark or the name or the number of the beast upon them. Now, isn't it interesting to hear how many, with all their interpretations of six, a hundred, three score and six, and they will identify this character and that character. They will seek to come to some kind of a settled opinion as to who this number actually belongs to. And they just simply ignore what is written in the previous verse. It isn't just that there's a certain individual, uh, this personage of the second beast, and his number is 666. But everyone who is great, small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, they have the same number. They are marked in the same way. They have the same number. It's their number too, 666. And it is amazing how people just simply ignore that. It's just a concentration upon some particular individual, let it be the Antichrist, the man of sin, the Pope of Rome, whoever it is, that's the number that belongs to him. And yet we see that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So they are identified as belonging to him, but being of the same spirit and numbered with him. Now, keeping that in mind, because probably some of you were waiting to hear, now we've heard that this 666 is the number of the papacy, or it is the number of the some Roman Empire emperor like Nero, or it is Hitler, or it's Mussolini, or it's Henry Kissinger, or it might even be Ronald Reagan or whatever else. The fact of the matter is, the number is the number of the beast. And we are told many things about him by which we can identify him. And we've already looked at them, but so that we might have it confirmed, I want to uh, consider 
something further of his identification. Now, having said that, is it not interesting that most of the Bible expositors go through the book of the Revelation using and uh, expounding and explaining the various numbers that are mentioned symbolically. Number seven, it's a symbolic number. Number three, it's a symbolic number. Number 12, it's a symbolic number. 144,000, it's a symbolic number. And then they come to a thousand years. That's not a symbolic number. And they come to 666. That's not a symbolic number. And there's no consistency. You see, when we come to interpret the scriptures, there has to be a consistent application of certain interpretive principles and uh, that has to be applied right through. Now, here we have this beast arising and he has two horns as we looked at, two horns like a lamb and he speak as a dragon. Now, the dragon himself, the great red dragon, when we go back, we read about him that uh, he has seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. The first beast that arises out of the sea, as we noted, he has seven heads and ten horns and upon his head, horns, ten crowns. Now come to the second beast that arises out of the earth. He has two horns, but you'll note no crowns. He has two horns like a lamb, but he doesn't have any crowns. Now the crown, of course, symbolizes the majesty of the power, the conquering power of kings engaged in military exercises, and it is a symbol of regal military power. When a king came home from war, he very often wore the crowns of the kings that he had defeated. And this was to display not only his victory and testify to it, but to it was a symbol of his overpowering uh, defeat of the enemy. Now here, the devil has his heads and he has his crowns. The first beast has his heads and his crowns. But here is this second beast and he's got horns, but he's got no crowns. Because you see his power, although the source is the same, he's from, his power is from exactly the same source as the first beast. It is satanic power. But 
it is obviously exercised in a very different way. It isn't military power. It isn't the might of the sword that is here exercised, the power of the sword, on the part of this second beast. It is a power that is exercised in the two horns, which may well be symbolic of the two kinds of power that has been exercised down through the centuries by the papacy. Ecclesiastical power, spiritual power, ruling over the church, but also uh, the power of the civil magistrate or the magistrate ruling uh, and governing the lives of men, but exercising a different, subduing them with a different form of power. Yet it is from exactly the same source. Now, If we go back to the chapter that we read from in the epistle, the second epistle to the Thessalonians, we read there of the warnings of Paul to the church of the Thessalonians, telling them of what he expected to happen in the future. And... uh, He is warning them of a great apostasy from the truth. And uh, when we read in verse uh, 3 of chapter 2, Paul says, Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. There's going to be someone who will appear among men. He will be revealed in the appointed time and he will be, as he is described here, he will be seen to be the man of sin and the son of perdition. The man of sin, the man who sins, the man who delights in sin, the man who is sin incarnate, as it were, and the son of perdition, one for whom there is simply no salvation whatever. He's the son of perdition. Remember what Jesus said and John 17, regarding his own disciples, when he was addressing his father, he said, I have kept them all. Not one is lost, save the son of perdition, Judas Iscariot. And he went to his own place. Here is one who is going to betray the truth to a far greater extent than Judas Iscariot ever did. He is the son of perdition. Now, what will be remarkable about him? Verse 4 of Second Thessalonians 2, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God. Uh, so therefore, 
He exalts himself above every religion. He exalts himself above all that is called God. Not only God, uh, Jehovah, but as we will see in the context, every religion, every God that is worshipped by men uh, that is called God or that is worshipped. So that he as God sitteth in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. He's not inhibited in any way. He's not embarrassed that he declares himself to be supreme. There is none higher. He is supreme over all. Now, Paul says in verse 5, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. This was part of Paul's apostolic teaching because he knew the church is going to be faced with this. Verse 7. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Something is going on even in the days of the Apostle Paul. Something is already developing. In the future days you will see the fruit of it. You will see the bud as it were developing. You will see the flower coming out. You will see the full manifestation of this man of sin, this son of perdition, the mystery of iniquity that is already working, will eventually, it's been restrained presently, but it will come forth. Verse 8, Then shall that wicked, now it doesn't say that wicked one, it's that wicked, it's a title. This one who is the man of sin, this one who is the son of perdition, exalted himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. He claims himself to be God. He stands in the place of God. And he is described as that wicked revealed whom the Lord shall consume and so on. Verse 9, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, whose coming is after the working of Satan. Now, when you go to Revelation 13, you can't doubt for one moment that when you consider these beasts, they're working is most definitely after the working of Satan. Their power is from him. He gives the first beast a seat, and he gives them power, and he gives the second beast power to work miracles, and so on. So here, John is unfolding to us. It's beginning to be revealed. It's opening up. Uh, This one whom Paul identifies here How does he work? Whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. He will come and he will work for Satan. He will work 
and operate by the power of Satan, satanic power, and what would he be able to do? With all power and signs are wonders and miracles, lying wonders. It is interesting how many, when they come to Revelation 13 or uh, similar passages, they do not credit Satan with power to perform miracles. They simply say it's all wizardry, it's all a lie. He just doesn't possess that power to do these kind of things. For example, when we read in chapter 13, he deceiveth them, verse 14, verse 13, he doeth, this is the second beast, he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And the idea is this is somehow or other a deception. He deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles. He does perform miracles. Now, do you ever meet anyone they come along to you and they say, it's a miracle. It was a miracle. Therefore, it has to be from God. It has to sure be the work of God. Not so. That's the great blunder that many fall into. And that is how you see This deception of men is going to take place because they won't believe that any beast or that the devil has the power to perform miracles. Only God can do that. After all, didn't Jesus confirm that he was God by performing miracles? Well, here's what it says. By the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of God. Now, if you go back with me to the book of Deuteronomy, there you will find in chapter 13, Moses giving clear instructions from God to the Israelites of old. And what were they warned about? Chapter 13 of Deuteronomy, verse 1. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, he actually gives you a sign or a wonder. He performs a miracle. And the sign or the wonder come to pass, whereof he speak unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of the prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God proveth you to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and so on. So here is the warning. You Israelites, 
Yes, you've seen the miracles of God. You've seen the miracles that God wrought against Pharaoh in order to deliver you. And you've seen how that these miracles, the one who was instrumental in performing them under God, whose power it was, was none less than Moses. Moses and Aaron. So, here's the warning. You might be tempted to think when some prophet arises in the future and he seems to be doing things such as Moses did. And now he's saying, because I have this power, then you trust me to follow other gods and not just be confined to Jehovah God. You find that Jesus himself in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, he's warning of uh, uh, things that will happen in the future. Verse 24 of Matthew 24. Jesus himself says, There shall arise false Christs, false redeemers, false messiahs, and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. These are not tricks. These are exhibitions of satanic power. We were going through the book of Job. Let's just look at it, the very first chapter for a moment, and see what happens in the experience of Job. Job chapter 1, here's what happens uh, in verse 16. While he was yet speaking, one of the messengers who came to Job with bad news, while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Now, why did this happen? Because God said to Satan, he says, Job's in your hand. Go and afflict him. Exercise your power to afflict him and trouble him. And what does Satan do? He wants, he destroys Job's, uh, the evidences of Job's prosperity, takes away his flocks and his herds. And how did he do it? The fire of God fell from heaven. But who brought it down? Whose power was it? Whose hands, whose power was Job in? Satan's. Therefore, when we come to read words like these in chapter 13 of Revelation, verse 13, he doeth great wonders, 
so that he maketh fire come down from heaven and the earth in the sight of men. What will they be saying? That must be God doing that. But it's this beast who has power from Satan who is able to do it. Little wonder there's so little fear of Satan's power around today because we don't even read our Bibles to find out how powerful he is. And you think you can get up in the morning and you can head out into that world where he's rampaging around seeking whom he may devour, and I, you feel, I'm a very wise person. I can handle the devil today. I can handle him. No problem to me. I think you underestimate how mighty is his power. He's not the almighty, but he is the prince of the power of the air and the prince of this world. Now, there is... Therefore, in the thinking of Paul and in John, who writes this epistle, there is clearly the expectation of developments that are going to alter men's attitudes in society. Let's go to First John, the first epistle to John. And there we have... Uh, the epistle writing of the Antichrist and the spirit of the Antichrist. Verse 2 of First John 4, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. Now, just keep that in mind for just one moment. And we go over to the book of the Revelation, and we have these, this evil trinity mentioned, chapter 16 of Revelation, verse 13. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. There's the identities. The dragon, the beast, the false prophet. There's the trinity mentioned, this evil trinity. But what is Peculiar about each one of these persons of this trinity is that unclean spirits like frogs came out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. What are these evil spirits? They cannot be anything other than the very spirits of which John writes to the believers, the spirit of Antichrist. Verse 3 of 
First uh, John 4, every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now it is in the world. It's already here. The spirit of it is here. It's the spirit of the age, as it were. It's going to bring forth fruit in days before us. And uh, notice uh, what uh, John goes on to write. Verse 4, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore, Speak thee of the world, and the world heareth them. Now, what's happening in Revelation 13? Men are hearing, and it pleases them what they hear. And they worship the first beast. He shares his worship with the dragon. So they are persuaded to worship this beast. And uh, they give their adoration and uh, their worship to him. And as they worship him, they identify with him and they wear identification to demonstrate their association with him. Now they're speaking of the world. And the world hears them. And the identification identifies them with the object of their worship. Now, we might say, because I remember even since I was a boy, every now and again, there'd be some new technological development. And immediately, you were hearing sermons everywhere. The beast, the Antichrist, is arising. And we're all going to have to go to the supermarket and get a stamp on our hands or we're going to have some kind of a tattoo or whatever or the, all these these little lines and numbers that you have, they just pass them through the machine when you go to get your uh, groceries and it just they just keep making a little click every time they go through. And this was supposed to be the mark of the beast or the mark of the Antichrist. It is a form of identification with the beast and with his worship. And the worship centers around man. They speak of man. And they are heard because they do. Now you just think. You went down to some great event down in Sydney. You just think of it. Here we are, met here today. A little handful of worshippers of God. What do you see? Thousands. Pouring into some stadium. What's peculiar about them? 
They've all got an identification. They've got scarves around their necks. They've got T-shirts or shirts of some description. I don't know what they call them out here. And they've got their hero's numbers stamped across the back. And furthermore, when they all get into their stands, what do they start doing? They start singing their hymns, their songs. That's their hymns. Worshipping their heroes. Worshipping their idols. But they're all identified. And they want to be identified. They can hardly sometimes scrape enough together to feed themselves. And yet, here they are. We must get the latest. We must identify. We want, whenever our heroes come out, they, they see our shirts and they see their number and their name. And uh, they can see we're eulogizing them and we're worshiping them, we're celebrating them. Can't you see? Can't you see, child of God, what's happening in our society? And you don't have to just go to soccer or football or anything else. You look, young Christians need to be careful. Because... They're interested, perhaps, in a certain sport or a certain sporting activity. And because of that, they're naturally interested in the experts and those who win the great competitions. And then they see, he wears that. He dresses that way. I'll have to do the same. He's my hero. He's my hero. And Christians professing the name of Christ fall into that snare that they begin to imitate and they begin to act like these that they are involved in. How Can Christians in this dark day of ours feel so free, indulging in so much of this activity that is all about the worship of man? God is not there. Christ is not there. But man is there right in the center of everything. Now that's what... John was writing about. And uh, throughout the whole first epistle, uh, he warns against the developing spirit of Antichrist. But he is Antichrist, of course, the word anti means in place of or against. In place of or against. Uh, or the opposite of. That's what it means. Opposite to Christ. Against Christ. In place of Christ. And this is the spirit that was already developing. Now, you go back with me just for a moment to the Acts of the Apostles. And there you see 
after the ascension of the Savior. Chapter 3 of the Acts of the Apostles. And there, remember, Peter is preaching that great chapter 2, I should have said. Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching this great sermon at Pentecost. What is the end result of it? Verse 41 of Acts 2. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And one sermon, under the influence of one sermon, under the power of the Holy Spirit, there were about 3,000 souls added to the church. Now go over to chapter 4 and verse 4. What do we read there? (coughs) Verse 4 of chapter 4. How be it, many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. We're not talking about one here and one there like what we have in our day. When we've our communions, we're all inquisitive to know, has anyone been, has anyone come forward? Are there any new members? And my, we're amazed if there's two or if there's three, certainly glad if there's one. Here's 3,000. That'd be a handling for a Kirk session, wouldn't it? And then 5,000. They'd be full time at the business. And then you go over to chapter 5, and what do we read? Verse 14, believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and of women, and we could go on. Now you just think of it. Have you ever been an associate of, an associate of Peter, or these early apostles? And you've gone out into the world with a great commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It's a dark world. You'll meet with opposition. But you're going to have my presence with you. But tarry until you're endued with power from on high. Power from on high. In contrast to what we have In Revelation 12 and 13, power from beneath. This is the difference. Power from an eye, power from below. But look at these events. Here are these. Peter, for example. My, you can imagine him sitting down tired and weary, maybe conversing with John or James. And they'd be saying, we can hardly believe it. My, what blessing we're experiencing. What a glorious Savior is Jesus Christ. What a wonderful work to be involved in. We wouldn't want to do anything else. If this is what the gospel produces, let's preach it everywhere. Let's devote ourselves to... This is truly wonderful. Ah, but 
and the one who draws them, can he keep them? I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. And this is what the apostles are doing in the gospel. They're lifting up Christ to sinners. And they are turning to Christ. They are being drawn to him. But what about the keeping? Will they persevere? Will they be kept to the end? Will the promise be fulfilled? I give unto my sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish. What's going to happen in the future? And we see things beginning to change. And John and Peter and James see things changing because there's a spirit developing and it's the spirit of Antichrist. This Christ who is bringing thousands out of Satan's kingdom it's stirring up Satan and his kingdom. 3,000, we cannot have this. 5,000, we must rise and we must object to this and war against this Christ. And the spirit of Antichrist begins to manifest itself and begins to develop in the professing church. John says himself, uh, he tells us, Where they come from, these uh, uh, are of the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist. John says that uh, they didn't, verse uh, 18 of 1 John 2, little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard, that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists. They're little antichrists, whereby we may know that it is the last time. Now, what happened at Antioch? That's where they were first called Christians. Now, what do we also have in society? With the anti-Christians. We've Christ and the Christians. And we've got the antichrist and the anti-Christians. Even now are there many antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time. Verse 19, look at it. They, where did they come from? They went out from us. That's where they have their origin. They went out from us. They were once with us, with Christ, with the gospel. But they went out from us because they were not of us. Outwardly, they had an attachment. But inwardly, they were not united. And they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. And John is here telling these believers this fierce opposition it is anti 
It is real opposition. Where does it come from? They went out from us. And all the major heresies throughout Christendom, what can be said of them in common? They went out from us. But they were not of us. And they were not of Christ. Now, when we come to Revelation 13, it should be very, very obvious that when we look at what John writes, when we read of what Paul writes, when we come here, we can see the connection. We can see that what John is writing about is the fruit of what was already developing in the church, even in their times. Little wonder then the warnings go to the seven churches in Asia. Some of them are told that they must repent. Others are told they they are to hold fast what they have. Others are told that they must exercise discipline because there's already uh, internal dangers because the spirit of Antichrist is already abroad and developing and will, of course, bring about, as history proves, these divisions in the professing church. Now, going back to the book of the Revelation, and we mentioned the second beast, whose number is 666. What are we told about him here in Revelation 16? Verse 16, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Again, over in chapter 19 and verse 20, we read there of this trinity again, and the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him. You see the connection again. The second beast was working miracles. Now we're told for the second time that this one who worked, wrought these miracles is the false prophet. Now you will find that there are many people and they believe that the first beast is the Pope of Rome. And the second beast is the prophet Muhammad because he's the prophet, he has to be the false prophet. But that does not fit with what is taught here in these chapters of the word of God. Because the second beast here is declared to be a prophet who works miracles. And we're told in verse 20 of chapter 19, he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. 
What's peculiar about Islam? What's peculiar about the teaching of Muhammad? Like the Jews, they are totally opposed to any form of imagery. They will not worship images and idols. So of this second beast, the false prophet is supposed to be Muhammad. There's a contradiction somewhere because Muhammad spoke and taught against idolatry and worshipping of images. So who is this false prophet then with the spirit of Antichrist? Where did he come from? Well, John says, they went out from us. So the false prophet that teaches the anti-Christian doctrine with the anti-Christian, anti-Christ spirit has his roots in the church. And he has two horns, two manifestations of power, secular or worldly, and spiritual or ecclesiastical. And the one who fits that can undoubtedly clearly be identified as the papacy or the Pope of Rome. You know what our own Westminster Confession of Faith teaches in chapter 25? There is no other head of the church but our Lord Jesus Christ. Nor can the Pope of Rome be in any form, any way, be head thereof, but is. This is how our Westminster divines defined him or described him. But is that Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, who oppose, who opposeth uh, Jesus Christ and all that is called God, who exalts himself against Christ and against all uh, that is worshipped and uh, so on. Now, it is not difficult in history to see the evidence as to the development of Rome and the papacy and the whole blasphemous system. We cannot separate imperial Rome from papal Rome. It's an impossibility historically. Imperial Rome, like the first beast, received a tremendous it blew, we're told, the first beast is worshipped. He had the wound unto death. Now you will remember that Emperor Constantine, who on his deathbed was baptized by Eusebius, he claimed to die, or it was claimed he died as a believer. 
Now in the edict of Milan and so on, he, being the emperor, being the one who was worshipped by men, every emperor set up his idols all throughout the empire so that if the people never saw the face of the emperor, in reality they worshipped him. He was present among them. He was present with them and they worshipped him as a god. It is most fearful when we read in John 19 when Pilate said to the Jews, Shall I crucify your king? What do they they reply? We have no king but Caesar. They didn't say, we have no king but Herod. They said, we have no king but Caesar. And Caesar was worshipped and demanded worship. And they were saying, this idol of man, this object of worship, he's our king. We turn our back on Christ. And we adore the mighty Caesar. Nero actually claimed to be the savior of the world. That was what he claimed to be. As Hitler, of course, also claimed. And they had these blasphemous claims. One of the other Caesars, he would not allow anyone to address him unless they did so, our Lord God. And if letters written to him were not uh, addressed to our Lord God, he refused to accept them. The Caesars were recognized in imperial Rome as deities as gods. Now when Constantine claimed to be converted, the whole situation changed. Instead of Christians being persecuted, they were now coming into positions of influence and power throughout the great empire. And when in 325, Uh, Constantine called the bishops together Nicaea as a great great, uh, council he sat among them telling them you are the bishops in the church I am bishop without the church you see He was transferring the imperial power that was his as emperor, as the Caesar, and he's now taking to himself power, ecclesiastical power, to call councils, to control the bishops, to control the church. There's the two horns beginning to appear. There's the two horns 
He doesn't need military power. He now controls uh, the councils of power and he controls the church. He is, the second beast is the false prophet. Now, there's nothing very difficult about understanding that in the Old Testament, you have the true prophets and the false prophets. You go to Jeremiah, go to Ezekiel, throughout the prophets, you have the, the prophets of the Lord speaking the truth. You have the false prophets in opposition telling the people what is not from God to deceive them. So what does this false prophet do? He claims, like the prophets of old and Jeremiah, for example, they were able to say, thus saith the Lord. We come with God's message. But they were false prophets. And this false prophet is supposedly speaking to the people to direct them to the object of worship. And he convinces them and he persuades them that they ought to worship the first beast. And worship, of course, is shared with Satan, the devil. So this is a prophet of the apostasy. This is an anti-Christian. This is a prophet of antichrist. This is a prophet with a message that is against Christ, seeking to allure men away from Christ and to the antichrist. Now, when we come to verse 18, the mark, the number of the beast. It is a symbolic number, just like all the other numbers. And it is simply the number of man. It is the number that identifies man, man-centered worship, man-centered teaching, man-centered living in opposition to Christ. Now, the time is gone, but why do we draw attention to these things when we've been stressing the centrality of Christ in this book? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because although this beast has power to influence small and great, rich and poor and so out of every tribe and kindred and so on, Christ is ahead of them. And in the uh, previous chapter 7, you have a great throng around the throne out of every, all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues. What is the point? However bad things are, the glorious Christ is going to have his people. No matter how dark it is, he's going to have his people. And he's going to keep them, even through these tremendously fearful times of opposition. 
He's going to have his people and he's going to keep them and carry them through it. But we must leave it there for time is gone. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Gracious and eternal God, we give thee thanks that we have thy word, the revelation of the glorious Christ, the one who is in the throne. And however much opposition arises to him and to his church in this world, he shall have the victory and he shall wear many crowns, defeating uh, even to the very last enemy that shall be put under his feet. Oh, may we see him and may we living in the dark days in which our lot is cast, May we rejoice that we are by grace, if our names are in the Lamb's book of life, we are those who will not be deceived and led away with the uh, spirit of our day. Do thou hear us, apply thy word, pardon us, accept us, for the Redeemer's sake. Amen.